From the Wellington Studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, this is Out of Place, a podcast collection of short stories where perceptions intersect with reality and the humor behind everyday events are revealed. I'm your host, Frank Schiffman, and the author of the story that follows entitled, Go Fly a Kite. In March 1750, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to a friend theorizing that he could capture an electrical charge from lightning. His plan was to use a lightning rod and a Leiden jar, a glass container two-thirds lined inside and out with tin foil, and designed to capture and store an electrical charge from an external source. When many of us conjure up the classic image of Benjamin Franklin discovering electricity, we see him in a field flying a kite during a lightning storm with a guide string attached to a key inside a mason jar. Close, but not exactly on target. So what's fact and what's fiction? Well, as it turns out, electricity was already a known phenomenon in the mid-1700s. What Franklin actually set out to prove was that lightning was a form of electricity. To accomplish this, in June 1752, Ben Franklin and his son William flew a kite during an electrical storm. But they were likely in a shelter and used the kite to gather an ambient current from a nearby bolt of lightning as opposed to a direct hit. Franklin is said to have then touched the key inside the Leiden jar and felt a charge thereby confirming that lightning indeed was a form of electricity. Had lightning actually struck his kite, the charge might have traveled down the string and electrocuted him. Two centuries and twelve years later, I had my own lesson in electricity. It too involved a kite whose flight took place on a slightly breezy summer afternoon with hardly a cloud in the sky. I was nine years old and had set out to enjoy a fun activity with my neighborhood friends. The tranquility of that afternoon was suddenly shattered, leaving me distraught beyond my years. All sorts of wild ideas ran through my mind as I tried to cope with what had happened and how it might directly affect me. Fifty-nine years later, that day remains crystal clear, and I believe after listening to this podcast... You will not only find the story, Go Fly a Kite, entertaining, but out of place as well. It was the worst day of my life. I was frightened, scared, and felt alone. Before the event happened, my world was in balance. After it, at nine years old, I was a fugitive from the power company. What would come next? Would I escape capture or be sent to reform school? On that summer afternoon in 1964, everything was proceeding as usual. My dad decided he was going to install a new fluorescent light in our kitchen. It promised to brighten up the otherwise dull room with its light green walls, yellow and green vinyl tiled floor, and metal cabinets. All in all, an unappetizing place to eat. We referred to my dad as Tut, which was short for Tutti, the Yiddish word for father. Tut was a Hungarian immigrant whose tough Eastern European attitude was ever-present. He had come to the United States in 1924 at the age of 17. In the ensuing years, he became a successful fur salesman, married late in life, sired two sons, and settled into a once opulent estate known as Briar Cliff in Morningside, 
a neighborhood located in the east end of Pittsburgh. The estate, which was run down at the time of my parents' purchase, had been built in 1915 and sat on three and a half acres of land. Consequently, there was never a lack of chores to do. My brother Carl and I were trained in the art of manual labor from the time each of us was old enough to pull a weed, which meant a large portion of our summers were spent tending to the property or working inside on remodeling projects right alongside our dad. Tut was never without a project, and with two sons, he was never without labor to accomplish it. For Carl, this task-driven environment was twofold worse because he was four years older than me, bigger and able to assist Tut with larger projects, both inside or outside the house. Carl was also mechanically inclined, a blessing and a curse as Tut was always challenging him to match up to his own extensive skills. I, on the other hand, was relegated to more menial tasks like cleaning up flower beds, digging holes for dahlia bulbs, or hauling away leaves and other debris to a dump site behind our house. I looked for every opportunity to slip away to hang out with my friends. On this particular afternoon, I was so blessed. Tut was busy lining up where the new light would go, and Carl was sent downstairs to bring up a ladder and toolbox. If I dallied a minute longer, my dad would spot me, and some new task would be assigned. I wasn't about to let that happen. It was a beautiful day with a warm breeze, and I had no intention of missing it. Slipping out through the front door, I carefully guided the aluminum screen door back in place to avoid having the clicking sound of the latch's engagement with the door jam. I was conscious that the slightest sound could derail my escape. Once free, I scrambled down our stone driveway and onto the sidewalk where I made an immediate left and headed up the street. There were three distinct different houses to the end of the block. The only thing they had in common was the neatly trimmed hedges with a small patch of grass behind them. At the end of the block, I took another left into an area we called the Cinders. It was so named because the ground that defined it was covered in small black porous colored rocks. At its largest section, the Cinders ran a half block long and 75 feet wide. To the left was a strip of grass beyond which was a steep cliff. To the right were four houses of nondescript character. Straight ahead, the local Catholic parochial school was in the midst of building a new all-girls high school. During the preceding winter, the skeletal building structure had been completely covered in heavy, opaque plastic. I recalled the time Rick Flynn, Timmy Pinchot, and I pushed the plastic aside and had gone deep into the construction site to smoke cigarettes after school. The workers left kerosene heaters on, and we stood by them swapping stories. Eddie's mom had given him a note to use at the drugstore to buy her a pack a few days before. He kept that note and returned a couple of days later to see if he could buy a pack for us using it again. It was cold out there. Yeah, it's pretty warm in here. Did you get them? Sure did. Piece of cake. Check them out. A whole pack of Kent's. And with filters, too. Who's got fire? I enthusiastically responded. I do. Brought my dad's spare lighter. Filled it with lighter food before I got here. We're all set. What do we owe you? Seven cents each. 
Timmy and I fished through our pockets, pulled out the money, and handed it to Ricky. Then we lit up. smoke them. I'll tell you why. Because they're older badasses. That's why. And now so are we. Well, I don't mind acting like a badass, but these <coughs> tents aren't a whole lot of fun. I just hope my dad doesn't smell them on my breath when I get home or he'll light up my ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I also had a flashback of the many times my older brother and his best friend Paul Chambers tried flying their gas-powered model planes tethered to thin nylon lines in a flat, smooth section of the cinders. My brother's plane was a fighter jet and Paul's a biplane. They'd get them started all right, but rarely got them off the ground. And if one did, the flight was short-lived. The only time I could recall ever seeing one successfully flown for any length of time was when Mel Greiner, otherwise known as Toe, took the controls. Now, Toe was 19 years old and 6 foot 3 inches tall with a scraggly dark beard. He got the nickname Toe because he was born without a little toe, which worked in his favor when it came to the draft and he was rejected, likely saving himself from a tour in Vietnam. To me, he was the jolly green giant of the neighborhood and somewhat of a folk hero to all of us kids. He loved male pouch chewing tobacco, and it seemed like he was spitting out brown tobacco juice all over the neighborhood, sort of like a dog marking its spot. He also had a weird laugh that was donkey-like. <laughs> Once he bellowed it out, you couldn't help but roar with laughter right along with him, even if what he was laughing at wasn't really all that funny. Anyway, one day, Toe, he gets a hold of the tether line after Paul starts up his biplane. Hey, boys, let me fly that little plane. He just starts flying it in a conventional way, guiding it along and slowly moving in a circle. See? It's easy once you get the hang of it. Before long, he starts going faster and faster, then abruptly stops and begins whipping the line above his head as though it were a lasso. Yippee! <laughs> Oh, man, I laughed so hard that day, I could feel tingling in my brain. The kind of tingling that comes from lack of oxygen when you're about to pass out. Today would be another adventure. Today, Ed Chambers, Paul's dad, was going to fly his new high-flyer kite. Paul's little brother, Billy, was my age. And like Paul and Carl... Billy and I were best friends, too. Owing to the fact that I was delayed while plotting my escape from servitude at home, I arrived a bit late. A half-dozen neighborhood kids were standing around, staring up and looking forlorn. A second later, I knew what the problem was. Mr. Chambers' kite was stuck between two high-tension electric lines. I ran up to get the story from everyone. What's going on? My dad's kite is stuck up there. Man, I can't believe it. What a bummer. I know it's brand new. It was flying great. Then a gust of wind caught it and sent it into those wires. We all just kind of stood there wishing for a miracle that would dislodge it. That's when I spotted a solution. 
I hadn't seen it before because the wind was blowing it to the side. But then, the kite's string came into view. Instinctively, I thought, if I pull on it, I'll dislodge that kite. Unbeknownst to me, Mr. Chambers cut the guide string high above his head once he concluded there was no salvaging his kite and warned all the kids to stay away from it. I can get it down. I shouted out as I crouched down and jumped into the air. No! Don't do it! It was too late. I jumped up and grabbed hold of the string. I came back down to the ground while exerting an aggressive tug on the line before letting it go. The two parallel wires above, in whose grasp the kite was now ensnared, came together, sparked, and gave birth to a burst of energy in the form of a massive ball of white light, emitting a hauntingly loud sound. We all stood frozen in place, staring at it. In another place and time, I would likely have been electrocuted. Instead, my whole being was shocked with fright. The energy ball hovered overhead, oscillating from left to right, as if deciding in which direction to go. Then it shot off like a rocket to the left, suspended between the two lines that gave it life. It raced the length of the cinders, rounded the corner, and disappeared, the humming sound fading behind it until it was no more. We all looked at each other, wondering what to do next, until Mr. Chambers said, Yins, get out of here. And don't you say anything to anybody. Home was the last place I wanted to be. I was petrified. And once my parents took a look at me, they'd know something had happened. There'd be no going back. When my dad heard what happened, he'd yell at me, followed by repeated lashes from his thin leather belt on my ass. That would serve no purpose. What I was going through was punishment enough. I turned to Billy Chambers and said, I'll come over to your house. I don't want to go home right now. We ran away from the scene of the crime, out of the cinders, across the street, and three houses up to the chamber's front door. Mr. Chambers wasn't far behind. During our run, we spied the energy ball traveling the wires one block up. Billy and I sat on the front steps of his house. Mr. Chambers walked past us and went into the house. He emerged moments later, All the power's out in the house. Must be the whole neighborhood. I turned to Billy and said, I can't believe what just happened. What do you think they'll do to me if the electric company finds out? I don't know. I mean, what can they do? You're just a kid. Suppose they want me to pay for repairs. My parents will kill me. Or what if they arrest me and send me off to Morganza? Morganza was a Pennsylvania detention center for Allegheny County youth convicted of crimes ranging from petty theft to armed robbery, rape, and murder. Many parents would threaten to send their kids there if they misbehaved. Every imaginable thought of punishment ran through my mind. For a while, we sat on the steps on the lookout for police cars. If they arrived, we'd hightail it out of there. Finally, Billy decided we should find some other things to do to take my attention away from the incident. He went into his house and came back with a large magnifying glass and some papers. We spent the next half hour or so using the sun's rays to burn holes into the paper and start small fires. When we tired of that, Billy went into the basement and retrieved his toy carbide cannon. It was made of cast iron, about a foot long, and used a special bang powder and water to create an ear-deafening charged explosion. 
He filled the chamber of the cannon with extra powder so that a flame would come out from the barrel. We loved to shoot that thing just as cars passed by. It never failed to alarm the driver, who would abruptly slam on their brakes thinking they had blown a tire. I was beginning to calm down. Doing kid stuff was working well, at least until we heard the humming sound once more. It was getting louder and louder. Then the energy ball appeared once more. It raced down the street and back into the cinders. Next, we heard an explosion. Neighbors started coming out of their houses to see what had happened. Duquesne light trucks and police cars came racing down the street with yellow and red lights flashing and pulled back into the cinders. Billy jumped up and ran into the house to get his dad. The three of us went over to see what was happening. Several men in hard hats were assessing the situation. I really didn't want to be there. Suppose they spotted the fear on my face and decided to interrogate me. Hey, kid, what do you know and when did you know it? The men told us to stand back as they cordoned off the area. Mr. Chambers walked over to the guy who seemed to be in charge and said, Would you look at that? Suppose that kite caused that power outage? (laughs) Sure as hell looks like it. Some kids must have caused this whole thing and then run away. Trouble is that the power's out now not only in this area, but all over East Liberty, which is served by that transformer over there that just blew up. A neighborhood woman chimed in next. Well, when do you think we'll have power again? It's hard to say when we're going to have power again. We'll have to replace the transformer first. Could be three hours, maybe more, I guess. And that was it. No one asked me any questions, and I wasn't going to Morganza after all. But what's more important is that I'm alive to tell the story. Epilogue. An ironic yet humorous follow-up took place when I returned home. Tut had told my brother to go to the fuse box and cut the power before he began to install the fluorescent light. Their timing intersected with my action of pulling on the kite string two blocks away. Once the light was connected, Carl went back to the junction box to turn the power on. But of course, there was no power. Tut's first reaction was to check the wiring following by questioning my brother's actions. What had he done to cause the lights to go off, not only in the kitchen, but throughout the house? Consternation abounded that day as Tut and Carl spent an hour searching for the solution before realizing that a real power outage had occurred. Three hours later, just as the foreman had predicted, electricity was restored. News of the incident was reported by all of the local television stations. Aside from spilling the beans to my brother, I kept my mouth shut. If I wouldn't have been punished for doing the deed, I would have been punished for almost getting electrocuted. A no-win situation in either case. Thank you for listening to this out-of-place podcast entitled Go Fly a Kite, which is based on a true story from my childhood. Some of the names used throughout have been altered. For example, my best friend was actually Carl Chambers, not Billy. His name was changed because my brother's name is also Carl, and I wanted to avoid listener confusion between the two. If you enjoyed Go Fly a Kite, please give it a five-star review, follow us, and share Out of Place Short Stories podcast with friends. Out of Place Short Stories are available on all major podcast platforms, including Google, 
Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Go Fly a Kite was written and produced by me, Frank Schiffman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Special thanks to the following individuals who voiced characters for this episode. Brian Kirk as Ed Chambers, my best friend's father and the kite's owner. Tom DeSantis as Mel Griner, the giant in our neighborhood and kid's folk hero. Max Vestal as Billy Chambers, my best friend and confidant. Marlo Schiffman as a concerned woman in the neighborhood. Grayson Lepley as Ricky Flynn, one of my childhood smoking buddies. Cody Schroke as Timmy Pinchot, the kid who used his mother's note to buy a pack of Kents. The neighborhood kids of Wellington Woods, who played the bystanders who tried to warn me not to pull the kite string. And Emery McIntyre, who played me as a child of nine years old. Music score for opening and closing by Joshua Empire. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.